Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hello, everybody. Welcome back again to Cross Gold. We're here to finish what we started last week, part two of the Communist Manifesto, part two of part two. Uh, Chase is here with me again. Chase, how are you doing today? I've had a full day outside. I uh, started with a 7 a.m. run with some neighbors and some buddies into, <laughs> uh, you know, a nine hour, 10 hour working outside deal. So you know what, um, maybe fitting for the, all the points that Marx lays out, maybe fitting for the fact that we got to get through our chapter and two points, or maybe before just that, you know what, um, it's been a long day. I'm going to uh, shoot this one at, at, at you. Um, and, and as you laid out for us. Yeah. Chase, Chase has a little less mental energy to put up with my, uh, my nonsense today. Spunkiness. So I will, uh, <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna try to breeze through this a little a little quickly um, so that we don't end up having to do a third episode. But yeah, maybe lay it us out. So we got five points left. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, those are pretty much the last points. Marx does do this in an order, and there are certain, even though they're not bullets in the manifesto, you can read between the lines and find them. And that's uh, abolition of family, uh, the role of women in society, the abolition of the nation, uh, his ideas about class struggle and sort of what is true throughout all of history and what isn't and freedom. Uh, so those things are probably sound scary to a lot of people. Well, uh, so yeah, they I'm are do my scary. best to, uh, to try and demystify them a little bit and, and give you a straight answer. As we said last episode from the horse's mouth of the socialist. So uh, I feel like with that said, might as well just get right into it. Yeah? Let's see how you're going to square abolition of family or, you know, de- you know, break it, uh, literally getting rid of family. Well, that is exactly what he is saying they are not going to do. Okay. Um, I would say that that's a common criticism. I think even that you hear of, you know, now when people think of ultra left, quote unquote, people in the United States you know, want to abolish the end the nuclear family. They want to, um, you know, well, take children uh, out of their parents' care and put them in the hands of the state. You know, one of the common criticisms that we still use is like, oh, hey, we want to provide a subsidized or free daycare. Um, what a communist thing, almost in the sense of like forcing women to work or devaluing women in the home, or, oh, you know what, the state is going to be teaching our children their values from the earliest age. Um, certainly, those were some of the things like in the 80s and 90s that were used against, you know, that those types of policies, and even today. So y- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, we can start, we can start there and work backwards in time a little bit, which I think is a good way of doing it. You know, if you really think about that, and, and the way that that dichotomy is set up of, Okay, well, either you get free daycare and then all women have to work and, uh, you know, that they, they're not responsible for their child's health anymore. Like 
that's that's not necessarily true. Um, but the idea behind something like free daycare is to give people the actual freedom of choice um, so that, you know, a single mother doesn't have to work and have to um, at the same time, you know, by the time she does come home from work, she's been totally exhausted. She's smoked, doesn't have anything uh, left in the tank and yet is now required to you know, take care of these kids also. Um, what it really does is allow uh, people, yeah, if, if they need to work, if they want to, you know, live some part of their life, um, that's, that's great. Um, you know, you have that opportunity. Um, and especially, you know, now we have a system where, uh, you know, I think it's not controversial to say that in a lot of places where there are, you know, strong concentration of single mothers, uh, you also see those children not, you know, receiving the proper responsibility from their parents. They're not getting that same level of, of nurturing care and, and also discipline. This uh, is one in which I, um, I think that uh, conservatives, particularly conservative Christians that are, you know, quote, for family values and the nuclear family uh, need to watch themselves because it's a double-edged sword that comes off hypocritical in that we don't want to discourage or incentivize single parent living, right? Because it's just the facts totally bear out. Kids raised in a two parent home are much more successful, you know, lower uh, school dropout rates, uh, you know, less juvenile in, in jail, higher, you know, educational completions, all of these things, uh, you know, higher incomes uh, just all over the place. Uh, however, if someone finds themselves in the unfortunate position, you know, uh, by lack of choice to be a single parent, then I, I do think it makes sense that if we don't want to, you know, uh, resign those kids to probably a little bit more lower class living, given the single parent is probably working one or two or three jobs, also has to pay for daycare. Um, yeah, like if we don't want to encourage that cycle to continue, um, then some some public support probably makes a lot of sense, if not even for the preventative of the repeat. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're in a single parent home or even some two parent homes now and you have to pay for daycare just to meet your everyday needs, then you're forced to work just in the same way. Some people might say it's bad to be forced to, you know, be a housewife. I also think it's uh, bad to say that all mothers should be forced to work or all parents should be forced to work when, you know, taking care of kids at the home and, and being responsible for them after hours is, is something that we should, we should value. Um, so, so let me just, before we move on to this point. So like, let's say, where do, where do you come down on this as being ripe for abuse, right? Because whether it's a single mother or a single father, they could have kids and feasibly just not work and, you know, be, be kid factories. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of if they want to work, then the state, um, us through taxes, as crazy as it sounds, will pay for their daycare. Like if they're have fallen on hard times, but I just, I guess I don't like the idea of subsidizing a single mom who wants to, you know, go get IV and then basically not work and then just keep raising kids and keep getting funded by the state. Well, I mean, okay, you still I mean, have to pay for things like food and, and, you know, I, I think to say that that is the end result of that, I think is a real missing all the other possibilities that can come out of that. Like you already talked about, you know, like 
there's a lot more mothers who are single mothers who have to work two to three jobs just to put food on the table and provide things like daycare. Yeah, then man, there they are do. I, who are, I you guess know, the quote unquote welfare queen caricature. Yeah, this is like this is like, I, and I don't know what part of me. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's whatever. I don't like the idea of creating a system that can in like incentivize bad behavior. You know what I'm saying? But I really want to provide it for the people who need it. So yeah, well, that's kind I mean, of where I'm stuck at like, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for all the um, homage that conservatives pay to motherhood and traditional, you know, motherhood ideas, they sure don't seem to have a lot of faith in mothers, um, their ability or their desire to actually provide a good no, life stop. for children. Dude, I just told you, I want to do this, but oh, yeah. I don't want it to be taken advantage of. So like, I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place here because- I want to be able to do it, but I don't want to be able to disincentivize what I think is not only immoral, but a bad like culture in that you incentivize no work, which is a, a, an anti-socialist idea. You know what I so mean? So what you're saying is, is that uh, in order just to provide the most basic needs of life, the alternative is, is starvation, uh, total you know, immiseration and work all the time. Um, if you don't do anything or, uh, that, that is, that is an acceptable outcome for someone who, you know, doesn't do anything period, as opposed to the possibility that, yeah, I mean, with any system, there will be, of course, some people who take advantage of certain things, but I think it will be borne out through experience as people, you know, um, participate in the system that they'll see the people who like both have their daycare paid for and don't have to worry about, you know, their child health care and all that stuff and also work and also participate in society. Like they will be raised yeah. up. This now we cool. have a situation where people don't see the point. Well, they this is one in which, that, Oh, I can work three jobs and still be miserable. And my kids will still end up, you know, getting into crime or drugs or, or whatever else. No, dude, no, no. I think no, that way more is disincentivation to work. Don't straw man me. Don't straw man me, man. Like, so here's what I'm saying is that um, I, as, as, an, as like, you know, grown up in an America. And so in that sense, being an American, it's part of our culture to not want to incentivize and like create a established system for people to do no work. Well, how is that working out for us? Well, Cyrus, but what I'm saying is, dude, dude, don't counter with the 180 per, like degree opposite. There's a total middle ground you're missing that I think you're like, because your zealotness is like you're missing, which is Okay, this. so how, what is that middle ground? Explain well, it. And this is an idea. And it's certainly, I don't know if you'd call it a reform or whatever, but I think it's a great one, which would be single mothers or fathers, right? So long as they work or and, and are trying to get work or whatever else. Um, can have their daycare paid for, but if they choose not to work, and that's a tough way to do, right? But if they choose not to work, then eventually those, you know, those subsidies subside. But who really suffers in that in that situation if the parent decides not to work? Cyrus, who, who, who really bears? So this is where I, this is where I get on to. Not the person not working, but it's, Cy, the, it's the child. It, it, you're totally right, but like. But you told me before in previous episodes that it is a communist idea to work as human. And to yeah, no, Saint, I definitely to quote Saint Paul, to work to to do no work is like if you don't work, you won't eat. See what I'm saying? And yeah. so, so what I'm so what I'm saying is 
I don't care if you're a, you know, if a, whether it's a teacher or a banker or whatever, or you're an employee of the state that's building skills, right? Like you've got to do something. Sure. I mean, I, I see that. I guess I think it's way more of a disincentive to work. If you're a child growing up in a home where you see your mom working, you know, 16 hours a day, hold on, just let me finish. Just let me finish. You see your mom uh, working 16 hours a day, getting nowhere, all of her money going to things like daycare and just the bare bones minimum. And that's how she lives and dies. You don't think that that's going to, people are going to look at that and say, well, what exact, why exactly would I work that hard? If I know I will get nothing in return, that's, that's sort of how I look at it. But she's not paying for daycare in this system. I'm saying the state will pay for the daycare if she's working. Um, Okay. Well then if a, if a mom has addicted to drugs, then I guess her parents or her her children just have to suffer and die. Well, that's a great question. In which case, like the, the, I think as our current system allows the state would take control child protective services comes in. Oh, that always works out super well. And that doesn't, I think that should be like, it could be well, way more funded and Christians could be doing more there. But what I'm saying is like, yeah, dude, a person that's addicted to drugs not is not working is currently considered someone inept and not able to raise kids. Um, yeah, and I, I think that that's, that's true. Uh, I don't disagree with that point. I'm just saying at the bare minimum, like the child shouldn't be the person who has to bear the brunt of that suffering. But we're getting, I, I, you're so, the one who wanted to breeze through points here. I know, I know, I know. We're I not guess even I agree. gotten to the family abolition part yet. Uh, okay, I agree <laughs> with you that, the <laughs> maybe it's the Dos Equis. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, I agree with you that the child shouldn't be able to bear the brunt. But at some point, the parent has to take responsibility. And to say they don't have to is, one, missing a bunch of, like, good ground that we could, we could, we could agree on. And two... I think it's like it's it's diametrically opposed to our American culture, in which case so much more would have to change. And if you hold on to like everything, then you'll get nothing for much longer. So, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but just to be clear, you're the one advocating for the state stepping in to make people work, not the communist. Just want to make that clear. No, I'm um, saying if you want to get a new benefit, which is to, for me to pay for your, ch- your child's daycare, your ass better be working. Okay, sure. I mean, I think that there there is some compromise that can be achieved there. There is some sort of form that can be worked out. Well, um, by golly, that's what I was trying to say the whole time. Let's get but, to the point. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I just think that the way you described it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we'll move on um my people agree with me anyways (laughs) what i will say is that um a a common criticism that marx was receiving during this time about family abolition was this idea that like oh you you communists just want to you know end this idea of the family you know it's going to be a community of women you're all going to be just polygamists just sucking and fucking uh (laughs) 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 but uh (laughs) But that's that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying <laughs> is actually, you bourgeois people, you are the ones who are doing that. You know, and I think we we can have some experience with that in our day to day lives. You know, your average salt of the earth working person in the United States, they value the family greatly uh, because they understand the importance of it. They understand the necess- necessity to rely on those close ties that bind. Whereas the bourgeois, the, the, especially, the, you know, at Marx's time, the aristocracy, and now, you know, your, your greater bourgeois, they're always cheating on each other and getting divorced 
and for, for reasons that are, are purely hedonistic rather than, you know, financial. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to, or, or, you know, other things like that. And so he's saying that there's a certain dignity in, in the actual family and the bourgeois are the ones who have already abolished the nuclear family. Okay. He's saying, you're telling me the salts of the earth folk are actually the real true, you know, graveling your gut and spit in the eye, um, endeared family relate, you know, relators and, and relationships. Yeah. Whereas, uh, the bougie folks are the ones who are the desperate housewives of the bunch, um, and just you know, and 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 husbands as well. It's it's all you know wrapped together. It's just a TV. Yeah, and and he's and, also and those, saying, go ahead. And so, don't tell me, you desperate housewife crowd, yeah. that I'm anti-family when you practice that. Here's my problem with that: um, is he's he's good to call out the hypocrisy. But that's not a really good reason for the abolition of family. It's just exposing hypocrisy. Does well, that make sense? That's, no, that's a good point. And that, that's maybe it's a good opportunity to explain exactly what he means by the abolition of family. Essentially, in a way, what he's saying is like this wealth that you get, this ability to not rely on these ties that bind is, is bad and it's actually destroying you. What we're saying as communists at the time is we just want to have that conception of family, that conception of that closeness and reliability. And we want to expand that beyond the nuclear unit because at the time too, you have this, you know, the bourgeois is not only, uh, you know, doing their own personal stuff and screwing that up, but they're also corrupting the proletarian families by, you know, forcing their children, you know, as young as six to eight years old or whatever, to work in factories and dying at 13, you know, um, right. like, well, so, if I, it, it's, you know, it's worth what it costs you here. Um, yeah. Rather than saying abolish the family because the uh, bourgeoisie, you know, are already acting in that accord and they are already demolishing the proletariat family. Yeah. It would make a lot more sense. And I'd be a lot more for something that was like, actually we're family first in a sense of like, we want to strengthen the family unit and, yeah. and rather than like putting a state in between parents and kids. Um, Cause that's kind of the part that I think the next portion of this that I read at least where it says like, Hey, the state is in charge of, or is, is the sort of the arbiter of the education in order to sort of continue, not just the revolution, but for, you know, to make sure the ideals are passed on from generation to generation. Cause we can't trust the parents. I think something one much more American and much more, you know, savvy would be we're going to, you know, a, a, a beautiful communist nation is where every family is, is, is well provided for, well connected and, you know, resourced. That's well, I mean, something that's a little different. Yeah. And, and that I think is really like, uh, you know, a lot of this doesn't translate over time periods, but I think that is a lot of what he's saying in a sense is, you know, the, those ties that bind the way you feel about your brother and your, your father or your mother, like, really how much different are the people who are also just around you in your community. And it, it, as far as the education part, I can read this quote um, by him about, about this topic where he says, and your education is not that also social and determined by the social conditions under which you educate by the intervention direct or indirect of society by means of schools, etc. 
The communists have not invented the intervention of society and education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. So what he's saying there is like, the people who are currently educating your children, really, from the top down, are those corrupt bourgeoisie. What well, we're I mean, saying is we do think it's important and useful to explain to people in uh, your education that, hey, actually, you know what? Like, you should start to consider, uh, you know, your comrades as also part of your family. Um, and that doesn't mean that those ties that you have with your blood, close blood relatives are erased. It just means that, you know, we're trying to expand that beyond just the single cell and join all the cells together. Whether we were created this way or whether we've evolved this way or both, I think there's some sort of like limit to how many people I feel related to. Right. Maybe it's the tribe. Maybe it's because it was literally created that way. Sure. And um, and in that way, like um, it's just hard to feel ownership of that in that way over people I don't know and or, or barely know. Um, and again, something that is near and dear to our American roots and just sort of our, you know, our heritage is this idea of like parents being able to teach their children how they see fit. I think we've been talking about this for a while offline, but like, that's one of the things that um, like I'll send Kato to public school, but I don't want to have child protective services called on me because I'm teaching him morally something that maybe the public disagrees with. Right. Uh, certainly to love all, but Hey man, like we don't, we don't believe the same things other people do. And when, you know, you will obviously make decisions on that, but I'm going to inculcate you um, to, you know, to, to my, you know, damnedest yeah. in that sort of way. And so to say that, like, again, the state is responsible for the education rather than just a provider of it. And like, and the state is really the parent. Um, again, whether or not you see it as ideal, I totally don't. I just think you're pushing the day to infinity that that'll actually be accepted if you like say, yes, the state needs to be the parent rather than let's make all families resourced. No, and, and I agree with that in a sense, because I, I don't really see that as what he's saying is like the state is the ultimate parent. But I mean, even now in our society, there are certain things where we say like, okay, like what you're teaching this child, like we have to intervene to a certain degree. I mean, conservatives talk about it all the time when they're, they're, you know, scared of, you know, parents teaching their kids Sharia law or whatever else. And, and they say, you know, oh, well, like that is a bridge too far. Well, maybe um, I actually don't think so in the sense of like, there's a ton of examples of like religious, like hardcore sex, basically like not sending their kids to school, namely the girls to school. And we let, we let a lot of that fly under the radar. Right. Do I think that is like that necessarily, I mean, should we not set some boundaries? And you know, we talk about like polygamy, you know, I mean, those, yeah, man, you know, because like, I do, I think like all kids like have a right to be educated. Yes. Is it like on the parent? Like this is a tough one. Cause we as Americans, like, okay. Like maybe a little bit um, cause the right to education and getting an education is one in which I'd be like, yo, gee, if the parents not willing to let their kid be educated or like that's a tough one right yeah i mean it's, oh, but, but I mean, maybe right but here maybe in the heart of uh, maybe something uh, a little bit more like spicy or a gray which would be like spanking children right because spanking is one of which like man you could beat somebody or you could just like you know hand spank belt spank pants up or down whatever right where the state could be like wow yeah you're teaching your kids violence 
and that is not okay right where it's this is an easy one because it's a little bit more explicitly laid out like hey like you know if you live your child do not spare the rod right um in the sense of like people feel that that's a religious right to be able to do that in some senses so I get that some people can see that as a slippery slope, of course, but you know, if this is a democratically controlled system and especially if that democracy is extended down to lower levels where it's the community is deciding certain things about the way the aspects in which they want their job to be educated, then I I think you're going to find that, yeah, there will always be outliers, but it's like, I live, you know, here in, in Brooklyn uh, and there, I see the, the Hasidic, uh, families and and they don't allow their their the girl children to be educated well i mean that's that they ain't the only ones you know yeah, and they, <laughs> they're not the only ones by any means but i at some point you you do have to well and this is say what, you know we live in a society you know we have well we, right we, there are rules here but but like we but we've decided to live in a federated republic which i think is actually and and this is one in which i will continue to repeat for you because if you want like these good things so much good that you're proposing, which is the identification of problems like single mothers that don't have you know access to like subsidized daycare is getting forfeited because you're like spending your time on total craziness, bro, which is <laughs> putting the state in charge of my kids, right? I'm not saying that though. No, you but are Marx putting is. those words into my mouth. No, but Marx is, and well, no, but like, uh, here's just my frustration is which to me, that's so much more real time helping people and and like could actually be a law within our lifetime versus like the state coming in and saying hey we're going to change how we do this federated republic which is the nation gives rights to the states which gives rights to the municipalities and says hey we're going to let you kind of f it up on yourself or or do you know be sort of a lab laboratory and workshop but we actually extend that down to the families in a way in which like and this is sort of the chorus i want to repeat which is minority rights yeah. which is we're giving you the right to screw up your kids. And maybe that would actually be for the, the price of that minority, right? I would be willing, right? When that child becomes an adult and does, you know, God forbid, she doesn't get her education at 19, the state will pay for it. The state will subsidize the tutoring for your GED, right? Because you didn't get your education and your freaking parents screwed it up. Sure. Um, but like the provision of the right but at that to- point, you recognize that that's too late. You know, it, it, like we all know that you, you make your bones in, in that early, early childhood education. I just, you, your, your position, just so I understand it correctly, is that there's no occasion in which any sort of oversight body, be it local or otherwise, has any reason to intervene with the way a child rears, a parent rears their child. No, I definitely think there's abuse. And that is abuse through either commission or omission, right? Giving your kids badness or not giving your kids goodness. Where that falls, I haven't like, I, you know, I'll take the cop out and say I haven't figured it out yet. Right. But that's what I mean. Like, I, I think when you when you hear me say things like the state, you're thinking of like this giant Stalinist, you know, overarching thing that is just sending down answers from on high. That's not what I mean. Well, but, I think but there, there are lots of, you know. Even wor- Here's the problem. Even worse it's like this woke mob that'll tell my Cato how to think and what was true and right or wrong. And, and your father is a bigot. And, you know, who cares if he like loves people or not? He's a bigot because he thinks things. And so we're going to take you, you, you like, you got to really that, like, have to. I mean, like you live in Grapevine, Texas, if, if that was where the power was vested, but it was still a, you know, more 
equitable, more redistributive system where the state does there locally does have some authority to intervene. Are you really that concerned? You really uh, well, I mean, that would happening? be really interesting. That would certainly like facilitate the polarity of places like, you know, people who want to live in certain places will, you know, it's either going to be red or blue. But I but like, again, this federated system isn't something that I've considered within your framework. It's the democracy, which is the nation, which is and we have a direct election of senators, you know, which wasn't even friggin a part of the original constitution by God. You know what I mean? So when you say democracy, I think literally 51% of the vote, which dude, I, I think 51% of the people and almost everything were conservative or Democrat are crazy. You know well, what I, mean? I, I don't necessarily disagree that fully direct democracy in every situation is the best, but that is another thing that ostensibly democracy enables is for people to decide exactly how they want that power to be distributed and organized. So, I mean, you're, you're, imagining i think when i talk about these things that i have a specific idea in mind of what the quote-unquote state looks like and that's just not true i i know for a fact that it will i mean even mark says it in the communist manifesto that there will be different solutions for different states fair i guess um, what here's what's lost in translation to the you know white southern christian right socialism and communism come in a couple packages national forced without minority rights and it would do very well to say like, hey, that's not going to change. But you, gonna- yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that will change. And I think that most people's conception of communism is a very distorted one be- because of exactly what you're saying. I so mean, what I'm suggesting is when pitching this in the future, include minority rights, federated system, and with certain, you know, like... Um, provisions like people will raise their own kids i mean do you know that this the soviet union was a federated system made up of worker soviets that were did have democratic control like do you know anything about what it was actually like to live there um no but it's tough to sort of get around you know the millions killed in order to like you know the forced industrialization of the country sure but i mean that happened in the 30s and 40s i mean we've done some pretty pretty bad stuff since then we've killed millions Winston Churchill wasn't uh, came from a capitalist and democratic system, and he's responsible for four to six million deaths in, in Bengal, India. So I think, you know, like, yes, I, I will. Yeah, you want me to say that, that Stalin was not, a gangster not, and a coward a, and a bad person? Yeah, I do think. That. Yeah, but that, that's not due to his communism. That's due to his imperialism. You know what I mean? Uh, Move your next point. Anyways, we'll move on. Um, okay. So, I mean, sort of connected with this, and this is connected, you know, with the um, uh, thing you were talking about earlier, but is this idea of, of how the bourgeois sees women, uh, which is as a mere, as Marx says, the bourgeois sees his wife as a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are to be exploited in common and naturally can come to no other conclusion that the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to the women. Uh, it goes on a little bit, and then he says, the communists have no need to introduce community of women. It has existed from almost from time immemorial. Um, and what he's not saying there is like, oh, yeah, we're just going to like hold all wives in common. He's saying, you, bourgeois, think that. Uh, because you see, when I say that I want to you know, hold all productive forces in common, then you, you say, oh, well, my wife's a productive force, so that must mean you want to hold her in common. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, no, we don't, we don't even want to touch that. That's another thing where he's saying it's like, I don't really care 
It's like, I think that a lot of things will happen naturally as a result of holding productive forces in common, but like this dissolution of the family unit that you fear, that's you projecting more than okay, yeah, I mean, saying that. You know, from what I read about Marx, he seems pretty pro women rights. And so uh, I'm not going to disagree with that. Can you maybe just like to close this point, touch on what he was talking about when he's mentioning prostitution? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, um, I mean, that's one thing that he, he talks about is he's like, you know, the bourgeoisie are not even content to, uh, you know, sleep with each other's wives or to exploit the women of the working class for their own ends um, or just the comp or the prostitutes. You know, they, they do it all. They want all the women. Um, and, you know, he uh, he touches on uh, prostitution in general. And I don't think he's exactly being, you know, saying like, oh, prostitutes are bad. But what he's saying is that they're, you know, commodified under the system. It, it, they're the purest example of the bourgeoisie holding a woman as a, a productive force or as a commodity that can be bought and sold on the open market. Um, and so, I mean, do I know exactly what he would do about prostitution in, uh, you know, in an idealized communist system? Well, no, he doesn't really touch on stuff like that. It's, what he's yeah. saying is, is like, you think prostitution's bad and like, I don't necessarily disagree, but like, that's a result of your system, not mine. Okay. Um, so I, I thought he was saying something like, Hey, we're basically going to get rid of con uh, prostitution, not because people might not might choose that, you know, that as a way to earn more money or whatever else, or, you know, gain social capital or whatever. It's because women are forced into it, or as you said, commoditized, and yeah. we're going to do away with basically the dehumanization of women um, uh, for, you know, money for sex. Well, I mean, at the very least, I think what he would say is like, well, if their basic needs are all met, then right, right out of the gate, because of that, you're going to get a lot fewer prostitutes. Um, will some people still choose to do that? Maybe. Um, but that would be their free choice to sell their okay. labor on the open market. Yeah. Hey, you know what? If everyone is, you know, doesn't need uh, to pay for their freaking kids school or, you know, clothes or to feed themselves, which ideal, right? Like yeah. God was the day when, like, you know, that people have to, sell themselves to pay for their necessities. Yeah. And then that is what he's saying is like, well, right now we have a system where that is. So you're saying you're all about family values. Okay. You've created a society in which women are forced to sell their, their bodies for. Fair. Yeah. And you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's good worth reiterating. He's writing, you know, in, in uh, the late 1840s. Yeah. In, you know, uh, apex peaking. Yeah. He's living in London, you know, it's industrialized Manchester and Birmingham and London where, you know, these tons are of ghettos, poor huddled masses from the ag, you know, exactly. working terrible shifts with their kids. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Um, okay. We'll move on to his next uh, major point, which is the abolition of the nation. And this really is one point. Sorry. No, when, go ahead. Um, Les Mis written. Uh, Victor Hugo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Victor Hugo was definitely a socialist. No, no, no. Um, but when? Oh, um, it was not it, Lema's common misconception. It's not actually about the French Revolution. Um, it is about a revolution that happened in France later, the July Revolution. I want to say, gosh, you know, I don't know the exact year, but it was definitely before 1848, but not much before it. Okay, so he's sort of writing about the conditions of what was going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, I mean, got it. That's, that's that I, would be a common sight, you know. Whatever happens to I forget her name, Francine or Florence. yeah, I mean, she's selling her hair and her teeth, you know, to feed her. You know. Exactly. I mean, that's that's something you would see. Um, okay, so um, 
another scary thing that I think a lot of people get a little, you know, back off from this idea of the abolition of the nation and, and all things, I think it's important to, to start from the context here as well, where Marx is talking during a time when uh, there is all of these, it's, it, you know, uh, I think pre 30 years war, um, there are, uh, it's the establishment of these national systems. And basically, I mean, it, it harkens back to a metaphor we, we've used a couple of time on, times on this show of like, well, you know, there's all these people sitting in coach and there's people sitting up in, in first class. And no matter if you're on the left side or the right side of the aisle, in this case, you could say if you're Austrian or German, you have way more in common with these people than the people sitting on the left and right side of the aisle up in first class. Um, and, and that's that's sort of what he what he's driving at here is that, you know, uh, to, to fast forward a little bit to World War One, where you get essentially the decimation of all of the working classes of Europe, um, just killing each other, a mass class suicide, essentially. Um, and it was for for what exactly? Does anyone even know? I mean, I do. I, I feel like I'm pretty historically read on the, the causes of World War One. But it doesn't even really have that much to do with national interest. It was really the whims of the rulers and and their connections with each other and, and disputes yeah. um, that were more personal than they were national. And so he's almost you know, prophesying that and saying like, don't don't fight each other. You guys, the Austrian mine worker and the German factory worker and the woman spinning textiles in Manchester, you guys are a nation. You guys are a nation together. Uh, you know, things, things have definitely changed, of course. And this is why I say it's kind of a sticky concept. Um, because, you know, in the common day United States, like, it's hard for us to see like, it, you know, if I'm a, even if I'm a server, well, we have and, a bigger middle class than a lot of developing countries as well. So like, if I've got a two story house or whatever, yeah. it's hard for me to like relate to other folks, but you used a good example in one of our offline conversations that I thought it's probably a pretty good modern day conception of what you just said. Yeah, I, I think, well, I mean, if, if I'm thinking of the one you're thinking of, it, it's this idea of, you know, like, um, well, we might not feel that way, uh, but we have a lot to distract us uh, from, from this idea, the, the, this conception of being alienated from your labor, which just short and sweet, what he means by that is like that feeling that you get when you spend your whole life working for someone else to make them money. Um, here in the United States, we have inf infinite cultural comforts uh, and consumer comforts that we can sort of buy to assuage that feeling, to soothe it, to make it go away. But a, you know, a uh, salt miner in Bolivia or a textile worker in Bangladesh, they don't. And they, they do feel that alienation fully fully immiserated in it with little to distract them from that reality. You know, that's in large part why I would say there's never really been that. I mean, there's certainly been times where it's been close, but it was all before, you know, the sort of 1950, late 1950s, early 1960s consumer boom. Um, and it's because, well, we sort of grew to like our chains. You know, we like to watch TV for four hours after we get off work and have three or four beers and then just go to bed and do it all over again. Because it's like, well, it might not be the most interesting or exciting, but it's like, well, at least I'm comfortable. Um, now, that textile worker in Bangladesh or salt miner in Bolivia, they're not comfortable. They're miserable all the time. 
And if we didn't have these consumer comforts, well, then yeah, we would be too. But the reason we do is because they don't. Mm, I don't quite buy that yet, but we'll address that issue later. Okay, yeah, okay. We'll, move, we'll move right along. Um, so that's what he means by abolition of the nation. And then he gets into some, some a little bit more philosophical concepts. And, and this one this maybe something, I mean, we'll definitely continue to dig into it as we go forward, because it's very important tenet of, of Marxist ideology, which is that uh, all of a lot of the things that you think of being, you know, true about human nature throughout all of time and space uh, is not the case. In his opinion, one of the only things that are true about human nature, you know, from our very beginning is our capacity to work and to improve our lives through like manipulating the environment around us through our labor. Uh, and what he says is, is because of that. So uh, the break that down, say that again. Like, or like in one so, sentence. So like, yeah, you say you're, you know, a caveman and, you know, you're just starting to figure out how to use tools or whatever you know previously you just sort of walk around pick berries and whatever else you know scrounge around like like a monkey would um like a chimp but he's saying my ancestors really started to become when we really started to become human is when we started to be like oh well if i cut down this tree and this tree and then maybe put some palm fronds over the top of it like i don't have to search for shelter every night i could just i have it um you know it's it's that ability to do like translate our labor into like tangible improvements in our life that separates us from the animals is essentially what he says so what he goes on to say because of that is the thing that defines you know all of the things that make up our society is one how those resources are distributed and two like which is essentially the what he calls the mode of production um it is you know like like we've talked about before, like in the feudal mode of production, you know, there was a established sort of system. And that is how like, you know, there's a reason why Protestantism flourishes under capitalism, whereas Roman Catholicism flourished under feudalism. If you look at them side by side, well, Protestants are much more decentralized, much more individualistic, whereas the Catholic Church really sort of mirrors you know, the way that feudal societies were set up with mm. a strict hierarchy that was, you know, established from on high. Interesting. Okay, um, so that's fascinating. So mode of production is largely the way in which we distribute resources. So um, there would be a different mode of production for like ancient uh, Israel in which like, you know, everyone was sort of like, you know, their own farmer or slave or, you know, indentured yeah. servant. Whereas it was different in like the Roman time where you had like, you know, plebe and patrician, which is different is um, in the feudal system, which is different sort of in the nation state system, which is different sort of now a little bit of like in like modern capitalism. Okay, fine. I, all well, right. And that, that what's the, the really important point. I mean, all that that you're saying, definitely, I think, I believe um, what he would say, though, is what drives history forward is the struggle between the, the classes within those modes of production. So, you know, just to use our most recent example of the, um, the feudal period into the, like the liberal capitalist period is like eventually, you know, peasants started to be like, this is effed. And people who really, it wasn't even the peasants, it was the sort of merchant class who no matter how hard they tried, always bumped up against the ceiling of the aristocracy, the landed nobility that, you know, just had what they had because their families had always had it. 
And that, oh. that class struggle is what transitioned us from feudalism to capitalism is that merchant class being like, you know what, screw this. Like if this is, if that's how you're going to be, well, then we're not going to have Kings anymore. Um, this is interesting. And- I have to think more about it because I've understood um, economism to say like the, the main struggle is between classes where I, you know, would say, well, gee, the main struggle, if we had to pick a main, if we had to pick a main, it would be between man and God. And like, you know, with, and sin is between man and God. That is like a, the main struggle, but it is really interesting because I finally freaking bit the hook and um, I'm listening to history of Rome podcast and I'm on already on like episode, like, you know, almost like 20 and it, you know, in the first, you know, basically BC almost, there's a lot of plea patrician um, class struggle that is, I don't know if that's moving it forward. Uh, so I, I think I definitely agree that it's a huge, um, uh, uh, you know, f- thing moving history. I don't know if it's the, certainly not the only I don't know if it's the biggest, but I would say if it's not the biggest, it's certainly in the top two or three. Well, I mean, and this is where it gets really interesting to me and very nuanced is he would say that like from that Roman period to the feudal period was a step back. And he he talks about this more in capital, but he says like when these, these, these class conflicts occur, basically either you're able to reconcile the contradictions and one moves uh, like the one that's below moves ahead or, you know, uh, takes the place of the one that came before it um, or it ends in the common ruin of the contending classes that if they, if, if there can't be, if one doesn't end up winning essentially, then they'll both end up losing. Um, and so, I mean, that's what he says. Basically what happened in feudalism was, you know, Rome was a more advanced society than the well, feudal period. And- but yeah. like those, those class uh, differences were never able to be fully reconciled. Uh, and then, you know, eventually the barbarians took over basically. Um, so what would you say in America? Like basically we've all won because we've made, you know, in developing countries, you know, working class, the losers. Well, I mean, if you think about it, just America by itself, then yeah, I would say the capitalists have definitely won and, and worldwide too. And, and there's some who say like, yeah, the class conflicts already come and capitalism won and that's the world we're living in. But that doesn't mean the class conflict can't resurface, which is to say, you know, now we have a situation where I think we're faced with a lot of possibilities of the common ruin of the contending classes. If we don't end this competition based model, then eventually we're either going to be destroyed by ourselves, uh, either by nuclear war, by uh, climate change, by, uh, you know, this desire for profit, which creates all this plastic, which is putting these microplastics in us, which is why you're seeing much higher sterilization rates among among men. Um, you know, it could be anything. Uh, I mean, Marx, Marx didn't go far to Marx didn't go that far to predict all that. But what he says is like, if, if you don't reconcile those contradictions, then eventually it, everyone will take a step, big step back. Um, and that's, I mean, I believe that is a, a point we're at now where if we don't move past the competition-based model in some way, shape, or form, or at least take steps to, then yeah, we are, it, 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 probably the two most likely candidates are nuclear war or climate change that will destroy I mean, us all. You know, again, I have had my head spin around on free trade, but like, 
that was that's sort of a kind of the grand well, part of the grand strategy of the United States and what we were almost going to continue to complete with the Trans-Pacific Partnership was free relative free trade agreements with some of these developing nations in Southeast Asia that are you know huge agricultural producers. In which yeah. case, like those countries uh, with less tariff import tariffs in the United States would would, would profit by by increasing the demand from the United States. Right. So, yes, it is a maybe not a desirable place to be to be some tenant farmer in, you know, in Indonesia or in the Philippines or whatever. But the price is going to go up for your for, for the demand if, for your goods. And it's like so long as that country has its own sort of like, you know, norms and institutions, there's going to be a wealth circulation. And it continued like that's what's been happening, right? Then well, no like, other kind of, like we didn't develop that way. We developed our industrial capacity and our, our we advanced our capitalist system because of tariffs to protect our industries. We the uh, developing countries in today's world don't have that luxury because essentially the United States and Europe enforce free trade on them and say, okay, well if you don't want to trade with us, then we're going to make your life a living hell. Because at the end of the day we can't provide sugar for our people as cheaply as you can. We can't uh, provide textiles for our people as cheaply as you can. So, you know, we, we would, we would really trade, like to see these tariffs go down. How, how is free trade bad for like Indonesia in the sense of like, they get to sell their goods and we buy them. Well, I mean, why don't you ask Indonesians? I mean, they've been developing for a pretty freaking long time and I don't know, we've seen too much advancement uh, because the reality is, is capitalism requires some sort of hierarchy there has to be somebody doing the. See, I, that's something that like I, I don't buy. Um, the, so, and we can address that at a different point because that's not something Marx is directly addressing here. Yeah. But the fact that capitalism requires a hierarchy, I've heard as a motif from you, and, um, and and at least the common conception in America is capitalism is a system in which everybody can be rich if you're, you know, smarter, ambitious or hardworking or whatever. Does that make sense? And I know that's not perfect and truly, truly in practice, but I think it's interesting because it's one of the biggest counters against communism, which is like, it's basically, you know, a sedative for good old fashioned ambition and working hard. Well, what I will say is we're currently at a, a point where things have only gotten more polarized in terms of the ends of the wealth spectrum where three people own more wealth than half the world that's never really yeah, existed but, but, in the history of, of, of what i'm saying though cyrus is like that doesn't like capitalism doesn't necessitate that in the sense of like can you give me an example of a time capitalism existed where that isn't the case basically um, what i'd be saying is like you know imagine america if you're, you're picturing a higher okay so, so sorry i want to i want to specify in the sense of like our capital system that has many social programs and socialist components to it, to me, is a much more preferable and maybe even ideal system than one in which is communist or socialist. Does that I make mean, sense? I'm not arguing for pure capitalism. That would be terrible. Yeah. But you see what I'm saying? Like but the thing is, is we are able to have that. This is a point I've been trying to drive across is we're able to have all of the great consumer things we have, all of these resources we have because there are people in Bangladesh or China or, or Indonesia making iPhones in modern day sweatshops. Like that is, 
your iPhone yeah, but, would cost but what I'm is 10 though, that, times like, more if it was made but in America. That doesn't mean that it has to be that way, man, especially as people like, um, I, I, you know, one, trying to, again, sort of encourages that with their own currency manipulation. But like there might be less profit to be made in the future with because the cost for labor increases. Um, but like that doesn't mean capitalism can't work. Does that make sense? Um, I, I guess I see your point, but what I would say is there's there you're, you cannot provide any example where that's ever been the case in the history of capitalism. There's always been a, a pretty rigid hierarchy that is made up of generally the same people. I mean, and we, we think we, you know, we in America like to make fun of the UK for still having a nobility system, but like we have political, are, what are the Kennedys not our aristocracy? Our, uh, Again, the Bushes, not, not our aristocracy. I, I would say I, we need to keep this point on mind. It, just because we're imperfect and are hypocrites doesn't mean like the point doesn't stand. No, but what? Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is like it's the same thing. Like the the money stays in the same places um, over time. Uh, like there does, you know, there's a reason why at West Point where we went and all the you know commensurate colleges that we would go visit, Princeton and Yale. Like, yeah, they're all third or fourth or fifth generation at all those places. And yeah, it's definitely going to get you a lot more opportunities if you go to Princeton than if you go to Boise State. Well, number one, what for where the plebs go? Number one, Um, I didn't freaking go visit Ivy Leagues, you know, smarty pants. So um, start there. (laughs) Um, I didn't know if I'd get into college. Number two, um, but that's not how it is in the sense of like, we have some programs, right, um, in which they're prioritizing people of lower socioeconomic status and like fifth generation, you know, Ivy. And that's a good thing. And um, well, they have to they have to allow the idea that at least there's the possibility you could join them. You could join their ranks and then your great, great, great grandson could also go to Princeton. Well, Cyrus, like it, it, I guess. But, but the reality is the vast majority of all those schools is made up of people who come from the same social class. Sure. sure. Um, and in a way there will all so long, there, there will always be favoritism. I think the favoritism is much more pronounced in a system that relies on favors than, and not money. You know what I'm saying? Or like, or social capital is the um, currency and not currency. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And so I what think I'm saying is, I, so what I'm saying, I'm only trying to make the point that like, I like the, the the framework of the system we have now with checks and balances and like humane like our programs to make our self interest rightly understood. Then, and I agree with you. There's a lot of things we are hold near and dear that are social programs or socialist like in in origin. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater is to throw the baby out, right? And, and, and I fear change incentive. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I understand that. And I understand like, yeah, we don't, like there are, there are certain things that we, you know, admire about our current system and that like, you know, you don't want to toss out everything, but I, I do feel at the same time, I mean, you're coming from a Christian perspective and sometimes I feel like you separate these things where, you understand that our society also is is very corrupted and damaged. And I know you think that that can't possibly change, that humans will always be that way. Um, but the reality is, is so much of that is because of the profit incentive and, and this desire to need to claw your way up the hierarchy in order to, you know, have some sort of legacy for your family or children or whatever. But like it is an intensely individualist society. 
Um, and that is why people have massive egos that are they're fully consumed by and why they are all focused on pleasure for pleasure's sake. Because if you're if you are in the only individual that you can possibly conceive of, then then you are God. We have created now capitalism has cre created a society where we're all God, uh, where, where each of us, not, not that all of us are together, God, but each of us is God in our own minds. And I, think I that definitely that think Christians that defend capitalism as a system of the Bible, uh, and many do, many with microphones and, and whole congregations are flawed, misdirected, or at worst, blind guides, hypocrites, and like broods of vipers. Um, I, I, I similarly, I think you're right. Similarly, a system that puts all of us in charge, in a sense, is a system where it makes like all of us God, right? So like, I guess I sort of like the opportunity to um where a god's not forced on me where i get to choose my god a little bit more and 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 yeah man that means the road to destruction is broad and many will find it yeah rather than you know like forcing people to, to do the right thing which is weird right. but like I know you think of it as forcing and I know that's a common conception. I just don't really think of it that way because I think of um, it being more like you're setting an example that other people can follow and you're pr providing institutions that make it easier to be less individualistic. Yeah. That make it I, easier I, to be part not, of a community. I guess I just have heard the counter so many times that I've got to like try to unravel it in my mind, Cyrus. Yeah. Is that like um, that it's not... It, it's, it's not something God does to make us follow him or to, you know, make us like it is that that's his really grace and free will is that like we get to do that. Um, so, so I am probably therefore would be against any system that would like force people to do anything, but certain structures that would probably produce better human outcomes I, I can consider. Um, yeah, I think I mean, we're on our I last think, point, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just say one more thing, and then I'll say sort of the last point, which is that, like, we do have a society where we force people not to do things like things like murder or rape or anything like that. And obviously, capitalism mystifies some of this. But to say that, you know, Jeff Bezos doesn't have any blood on his hands, I think, is just patently untrue. You know, there are supply chains that require... You know, I mean, like even, you know, people love to talk about the Uyghurs in China. And meanwhile, you know, nine out of 10 American corporations like have some part of their supply chain that goes through there that, that is benefits from that sort of labor. And like, yeah, you don't see that directly as Jeff Bezos enslaving these people. But if you didn't have that, you know, profit incentive, would we be doing that? Maybe we would, you know, like obviously there, there are, you know, counters to that. But I think that like if if he is let's you know play the devil's advocate and say he is responsible for people's death and immiseration then like yeah i think we can say like yeah we should take some of your money because you're you've proven you cannot be responsible with it in the same way that a murderer is proven they can't be responsible with freedom that guy can't be responsible with freedom anyways well and that gets to a bit the of the very last point well right and i think the like the idea of confiscating uh, people's property, particularly in, uh, you know, the pathway in as sort of the accomplishment of a socialist capitalist system is heinously bad. Uh, number one, like you want to fight, you know, if you want to get people to fight tooth and nail for, you know, any kind of revolution, it's promised that you'll take everything. 
Um, and, and you know, I'm I like I would like to. Yeah, it's a good opportunity to, to distinguish. You know what kind of what I mean here, which is to say, like, I, I mean, I, what exactly the society would look like? Well, I believe in democracy as a general rule, and I think that like the society would determine that. And there's a lot of reasons why other communist systems didn't have as advanced a democracy when they first started out. There's certainly problems that come along with that. We, we'll get into that in the future. Um, but at the end of the day. Uh, the society will determine how what that ends up looking like and and they do now in the same way that we have jury duty you know just a selection of eight random people i mean that's almost way scarier uh that determine whether you're guilty or not guilty you know i think they're you know in my ideal system there would come a time when the society is does the thumbs up or thumbs down on jeff bezos should he keep some of his stuff should he not keep some of his stuff i don't know well let's vote on it well, um, I mean, yeah, like, I, I think we, we like hold democracy as some paragon of some system, but like, ultimately, no one wants to like, have their morality judged by like a mob. Sure. Uh, but I don't mob, want dude. Jeff Bezos to dictate how our society is run either. And that's currently what we have, where you have, I mean, I don't think this is controversial to say even to conservatives that there are, you know, the tech CEOs in this country who have just fortunes that that the monarchs of Europe, even adjusted for inflation, just pale in comparison to. And to pretend like that doesn't give them a greater access to the levers of power, greater control over how society is run, even though they're not elected, no one put them there. It, I mean, in much, it, it, you could argue, I guess, that they put themselves there, but only because of the function of living in America and being part of this society. You know, at some point, you have to have some measure of responsibility. And if you're not willing to take it yourself, well, we have to enforce it on you. Um, I agree with the last part as far as like, you know what, if we, if you, you know, grow up in the society, you, you benefit, right? And there maybe therefore should be like some sort of wealth tax on like, you know, billionaires or something like that. Um, I guess what I'm saying though is um, yeah. Like, and a lot of Americans don't dislike that system and I'm not sure I do either in the sense that if you are a brilliant genius or super hardworking or whatever, and you come up with some novel idea and society rewards it with their free consumption choice, um, then you are given, you know, the fruit of that system, which is wealth. And so it's like, in I mean, a it sense, it certainly helps that Amazon in, in a sense, Cyrus, subsidies I, I, from taxpayer money. Well, but, but Cyrus, yeah, no, hundred percent. And I'm totally against any kind of corporate welfare or whatever else. But if I really wanted to be a stickler here, I'd be like, dude, we have a democratic system. We vote with our dollars right now. If you don't like Jeff Bezos, don't give him your money. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, that is an argument. I think that's true, but at the same time, like, capitalism historically always consolidates and there's real i mean in america like we are a culture of convenience and we've been conditioned to seek out convenience in every possible circumstance and what's more convenient than amazon and, you know it's like Nothing. and if i stop <laughs> if i stop doing amazon it's sort of that prisoner's dilemma except if you versus one other person you know trying to work out what the other person's going to do it's you versus you know 300 million people and it's like, well, if I stop this buying from Amazon, is it anyone else? I'm not saying your personal choices don't matter. Well, I, you can make personal choices in principle. But what I'm saying is, is like, 
yeah, but you don't have any control over that at all. So anyways, yeah. let's move on. I, We're I, almost done here. I, I, I'll just say I used to be against antitrust uh, as a, you know, a, a labored student of Ayn Rand um, because there are some principal problems with it. But I'm probably like for making sure that, you know, there aren't solid monopolies on industries and making sure that like therefore we're not beholden to private organizations that no one voted for that could in turn like screw us as a nation or as people or whatever so i mean I, and you see the ways in which like these companies that have received mass amounts of corporate welfare super wealthy i mean it, i mean it happened in the 2008 recession where it's well we know they did really bad things we know that they, uh, you know, use their power extreme well, wielded it extremely irresponsibly, um, but we can't let them fail. We are beholden to them, and we've only, in my opinion, gotten more beholden to them since two thousand and eight. Um, so, at some point, you know, I don't want King Bezos, but he has more wealth. His his company has more more power than most nations on earth. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much undeniable, at least if we're talking about from a numbers perspective. The only thing he doesn't have is an army. And how long is it until that happens? I mean, just food for thought. Anyways, last point before before we sign off here, we've been going for a while, but it's just something that I think is, you know, maybe we don't need to necessarily chop it up, but something that maybe to let sit in the maw for a little while, which is Marx's opinion on freedom and, and what actual freedom is. And he says, in place of the old bourgeois society with its classes and class antagonisms, we shall have an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. Um, and, you know, that's a little bit more philosophical. Um, I don't it's understand a, his last well, essentially what he's saying is, is I'm not free until everyone is free. Um, and he, he, I mean, what his point is, is that in capitalism, there are billions of people who don't have like yeah in america you might be able to argue that like yeah okay most of us like can kind of generally decide what we want to do for our life for our job whatever even though and, and there is some freedom of movement you know some freedom of maneuver but in my opinion as i've stated a couple times it's like that is predicated on your you know avocado picker in mexico who uh, is has no other choice? They, that's where they grew up. They can't. They don't, they don't move. They, they what? Totally leave their family. Any possible support system they have with no education. They they have to work in the local factory or die and starve. And and I think Marx would say like I just don't think that's right. I think that that, that doesn't that means I'm not free actually. If they're not free, then I'm not free because my freedom is predicated on their oppression. And so I want a freedom that's not predicated on someone's oppression. So that means I'm not free. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, you could argue that there will always be, oh, all of those people will eventually get raised up. But man, clock's ticking. And you know what? I haven't seen it. I just haven't seen it. The United States has only gotten, you know, more consumer goods and, and more uh, quality of life. Although I think that's going to start to descend. Um but those people in, in Mexico and Indonesia and, and China, like they don't have much choice in the matter. They, they are depend they're slaves to the whims of the market. Well, I, I largely will think about it. Um, I, I guess what I'll say is there's a lot going on though that you've glanced over about the local government, 
right? That they uh, are under or that we helped coup or whatever in the sense of like, if their local government is corrupt um, and the wealth doesn't circulate, well, then like that hurts the developing country, right? And certainly dissuades direct foreign investment and some other things that typically help developing nations become developed. Well, and, and that's the, that's part of the whole thing when it comes to the United States is they recognize that in order to keep consumer prices low. I don't know if we've to, gone that far. I, I don't buy that. We've uh, we, we coup communist countries. We don't coup them to keep them freaking subservient and wage labor. But we give countries. We also it's a carrot and a stick method where you give. Yeah, you say, OK, well, yeah, we'll, we'll help you develop. We'll give you some money. We'll give you those, this, this nice fat IMF loan check to help you build your country. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't, uh, if you don't follow by our rules, if you don't obey certain restrictions that keep things, uh, you know, situated nicely for the United States, then you're going to find that access to that money cut off pretty quickly. Well, it is us giving the money. Well, I mean, it's the World Bank and the IMF, but I mean, it is us giving the money. Yeah, sure. Sure. But my point is, is that if that's the case and we're the person who dictates that, well, then I think we need to look closely at why we do that. Um, it's capitalism for me, not for thee. So I like anyways. we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, all right, man, well, we've already gone long this, I knew this was going to happen, but thank you for bearing with me, Chase. I know you're beat and I appreciate you, uh, you know, making me clarify some of my points a little bit further. Um, but I think I'm going to have tortilla chips and cucumbers. I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, but that's, I feel salty. Like I want salt. And uh, the cucumber harvest has come in at the Capo house. And I'll send you a picture of the cucumbers. There's just more and more cucumbers. <laughs> well, that's exciting stuff. Exciting stuff happening over there. Uh, stay tuned for the cucumbers, folks. Um, and for next week's episode, we, uh, got a lot of really, we have a really good guests. So excited to share that with you guys. Oh yeah. Tell your friends, subscribe, all that good stuff. Follow us on social media. And you know what, and when you start seeing these advertisements, it's cause Cyrus got his act together and started creating them. And, um, and we're actually sharing, we've gone on a, you know, advertising hiatus. We've not spent a dollar on advertising, um, yet. So. God well, classic, classic capitalist. If, uh, yeah. you know, you, you, you can't be selling a product if you're not advertising it. You have come around on this. So create the advertisements, dear Cyrus. Yeah. Only because I think you have such important things to say. Uh, people need to hear. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, man. I love you very much. Uh, and I'll talk to you. I'll see you soon. Yeah. So. Um, very good. And, and it's, this is like hop uh, a couple episodes. Start reading and rereading and rereading the Sermon on the Mount, please. I will. I will. Okay. I promise. All right. Love you. Love Have a good night. Bye-bye. But principles are eternal, and this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs. And uh, look forward to seeing you next time.